marked in your Bible for the next several weeks because every Sunday we will open up our time of, uh, of the message by looking at that text. But then once you have that text in Philippians chapter 2 marked, I want you to, to find your place in Matthew chapter 1 as well. And I want us over the next several weeks as we kind of head toward Christmas to think about this idea, a series that I, have, uh, that I have titled Unexpected as we look at the way that Jesus came into this world. The fact that he was coming into the world should not have been that big a surprise. There were prophecies all throughout the Old Testament and in fact the people of God were looking for Jesus to arrive. They were looking for that Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah but the kind of Messiah they were expecting was unexpected. The way in which Jesus came to this earth was unexpected. The qualities that this Messiah possessed, the people did not expect him to possess those kinds of qualities. The people didn't expect him to have those characteristics. And, and I want us to, to look over the next several weeks at, at how unexpected it was for this Messiah to not just arrive the way he arrived, but to be the kind of Messiah that he was. In, in fact, if you look in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul tells us this about Jesus. He tells us to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For the next four Sunday gatherings, I want us to, to pull from Philippians 2, 5 through 8, four characteristics that, that were simply not expected for this Messiah to have. And, and I hope that you'll be with us each of those four Sundays, and it will culminate on, on Christmas Eve. I want us to look at, at the uh, verses right after that that kind of show us all that this Messiah did and, and what he accomplished. But today, I want us to focus on unexpected humility. You see, as, as the, the Paul points out to us in Ephesians chapter 2, he mentions a, a couple, or Philippians rather, he mentions a, a couple of things that surprise us about this Messiah. You would expect this Messiah to not be humble. If you're coming to be the ruler of God's people, if you're coming to deliver God's people, when you think about someone in kingly positions, you don't necessarily think of humility. There is a, a bit of of narcissism in each and every one of us. And if you're the Messiah, if you're the one in charge, they maybe were not expecting a humble Messiah. And yet what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, he tells us specifically in verse 8 that being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself. 
Earlier he said that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. That is humility. Instead he emptied himself. That is an act of humility. Jesus, his coming to this earth, his living on this earth was a life of humility. And when you look at everything about Jesus, it all screams humility. I mean, you you can think of all the different things that he did in his life that showed his humility, but I want to take us back to before he was born. And I want us to see from Matthew chapter 1 just how humble Jesus was from humble beginnings, even before he arrives on this earth, he is showing his humility. So find your place in Matthew chapter 1. And the chapter begins by saying this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, he always went upstream, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. They could never stop him from jumping. And jumping Jehoshaphat. Some of y'all had too much turkey and dressing. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. How many of you would just be honest and say that you dozed off during that? (laughs) And you call yourself a Christian. 
How, I mean, how many of us, when we come to portions like Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we either skim it or we skip it all together? I mean, there are some people who are into genealogies, but there are not many people who are into someone else's genealogy. It has nothing to do with them. It might seem odd that Matthew would open his gospel with a genealogy, but there's a reason that he does so. This genealogy drips with humility. You see a couple of names in there that kind of stand out, David, Solomon. Uh, you see the rifle, Uriah, a couple of names like that. But for the most part, these are a bunch of, of nobodies. These are, are people who come from very humble beginnings, who live very humble lives. And so before Jesus ever gets on the scene, you see his life is marked before it begins by humility. There's a lot of information that we could unpack from this text. And in fact, I, I've gone to this text numerous times in my personal study. And, and every time I seem to, that the Spirit seems to, to bring out something else that, that teaches me something about Jesus. And, and this morning, I just want to share with you just a few lessons from the humble birth of Jesus before the birth of Jesus. A few things that this text shows us about the humility that was to come with this Messiah. Some of the things, some of the statements that I'll make, you think that's not that humble of a thing, but you understand that at the time, no one understood what would become of this man, Jesus. In fact, I want to mention to you three truths, three things that I learned from this text this morning. Number one is this, the humble birth of Jesus became the center point of history. This humble birth, this baby, this king who was born in a manger, who was born in the feeding trough of animals in a backwater area that no one really was paying attention to. This man became the center point of history. So much so that we tell our calendar, we understand our times by his life. B.C., before Christ, A.D., in the year of our Lord. He became the center point of history. Matthew takes what would have been an insignificant family line and he organizes all of human history around it. For you see, at the time of Jesus' birth, it did not seem that Jesus was the focal point of history. Israel was a small backwater Middle Eastern country that was under the rule of the mighty Roman Empire. No one was paying attention to this family line. No one cared who Nashon was. No one cared who Abinadab was. No one cared who these people were. However, God had made a promise. God made a promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to send someone to take care of the mess we made of life through our sin. And God had made a promise through Abraham to bring salvation to the world world through Jesus. God had made a promise to bring the whole world into subjection to Jesus and God's promise would be kept through the birth of this baby. 
You see, Matthew's genealogy shows us that God is the one who is guiding everything in order to accomplish his plan, his purpose for the Messiah, and that he is going to use the powerful people and the powerful nations who seem to be in control to accomplish that plan. Let me give you an example. Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because Rome was taxing everyone. And during tax season, you couldn't file that thing away online. During tax season, everyone had to go to the home city where they were registered. Now, Luke's gospel shows us that God's purpose in getting Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem was to fulfill one of the prophecies about the Messiah, the prophecy that he would be born in this small, insignificant, humble town of Bethlehem. And so God, don't miss this, God moved the heart of the Roman government to issue attacks so that Mary and Joseph would be in Bethlehem when Jesus is born for the purpose of fulfilling this prophecy. Why did God go to all that trouble? Why not just tell Joseph, Joseph, go to Bethlehem so this prophecy can be fulfilled? I believe that God was demonstrating that he has the power to move powerful nations around like chess pieces on the board in order to accomplish his purpose in Jesus. Think about this. God taxed the entire world just to move two people 90 miles up the road. Here's how this is encouraging for you and I today. Back then, it didn't look like Jesus was going to be the center point of history. And may I say this morning that right now, it doesn't look like Jesus is the center point of history. CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, pick your poison. None of them are here right now paying attention to what we're doing on this Lord's Day. They're watching what they think are the most important powers in the world. They're watching the stock markets. They're watching the White House. They're watching world politics. They're waiting to see what opinion the CDC will change their mind on this week alone. They're looking at all of these things. All of that is like an insignificant drop in the bucket. The center point of history is what God is doing in the kingdom of Jesus, accomplishing his purpose to take salvation to every nation and to bring the world into subjection to Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus was born, the Israelites were discouraged. 
Because as they looked around, they saw Roman power. They didn't see how God was fulfilling his purpose, but God was. Many of us look around today, and let's be honest, as we look around, we are discouraged. Unbelief is growing. Corruption is increasing. Immortality, immorality is surging. A nation is deteriorating. Do not be deceived. God is accomplishing his purpose in this world today. The birth of Jesus teaches us that God had an infallible purpose for everyone's life. He has an infallible purpose for your life with Jesus as the center point of your history. His purpose is to reveal Jesus to you and to glorify himself through When you read this humble beginnings of Jesus, it didn't look like it at the time, but the humble birth of Jesus became the center point of history. Number two, second statement I want to make is this. The humble birth of Jesus revealed to us God's ability to accomplish his will. Related to what we just spoke about, Matthew's genealogy, if Jerry Springer had been alive at the time, he would have asked Matthew to come on his show to explain this. This is Jerry Springer, Mari Povich, the old school Phil Donahue and Geraldo all rolled into one. There is some crazy, messy, chaotic stuff going on. Let me give you an example since I can tell you're just dying to hear one. Look back in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 1. It mentions <coughs> Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Judah, do you remember uh, uh, Jacob had these boys, had 12 of them. And one of the boys was Judah. And it was from Judah's family that Jesus would come. When you see in the Bible, you see Jesus referred to as the lion of the tribe of what? Judah. So it's from Judah that Jesus, his lineage, that Jesus arrives. Okay, let me give you an example of how messed up Judah's life was. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. <clears throat> now, for time's sake, I'm not going to go read the verses, but in your devotion time today, you just go back and read Genesis chapter 38. Here's the story. Judah, the man Judah mentioned here, Judah has three sons. Tamar, who's mentioned that verse, Tamar married one of the sons. That son died before he and Tamar could have any children. Now in their culture, if the husband died without children, the deceased husband's brother, he had the obligation to marry the widow, his sister-in-law, and give her children. Now we pause and thank God that custom is long gone. <laughs> But that was his job. So <clears throat> the brother's name was Onan. Onan doesn't really like Tamar. But he begrudgingly marries her, but he has absolutely no desire to have any kids with her. So how do I say this in, in, a, in, a, in a mixed room? So he 
makes sure that he doesn't seal the deal when they get together. Okay? He's going to make sure he has no kids. Well, God isn't pleased with his actions, and so God kills him. <laughs> and now two of Judah's three boys are gone. <clears throat> Legally, Tamar is to marry the third and final son. But Judah begins to get the sense that maybe his sons <clears throat> are cursed when they have a relationship with Tamar. He doesn't want his last son to die, so he stalls the wedding for years. Tamar realizes that Judah isn't going to allow this marriage to take place, so she comes up with a plan. She knows that her father-in-law has a weakness for prostitutes. I told you, Jerry Springer. How they know this, I'm not sure. But she knows that he has weakness for prostitutes, so she pretends to be one. She seduces Judah... And she becomes pregnant with twins. Those twins were named Perez and Zerah. Three months later, as pregnancies tend to happen, she starts to show a little bit. And Judah realizes that she's about to have children. He has no clue that the babies are his. He demands that she be stoned. Tamar says, fine, but let me show you the belt of the one who is the father of these children. And she holds up Judah's belt. You thought your Thanksgiving table discussions were awkward. <laughs> Can you imagine the turkey and dressing conversation over this? And Judah realizes he's been caught. This is some really messed up. Is that not messed up? And yet it's through this family from Judah's lineage that God was working to bring about his perfect plan. It will be through Judah's family that he will send his son through this lineage to save mankind. Ladies and gentlemen, the same God is at work in your life as well. Look, some of us have some messy dysfunction in our lives. It may be because of choices we've made. It may be because of choices someone else has made. But I want you to know this morning that God is able to make good come from your dysfunction. God has one overriding purpose in your life. His goal is to accomplish Jesus' purpose in you and through you. And he is working all things, even those things in the darkest places of your personal genius genealogy to bring that purpose to pass. This humble birth shows us that God has the ability to accomplish his will. Nothing will stop his purpose. And here's the third statement. This humble birth of Jesus shows us the heart of God for the outsider. The genealogy of a Jew was like his resume. In this culture, your heritage was how you showed the world your worth. 
In fact, some families would change their genealogy, that weird uncle. And I've always said, if you can't identify the weird person in your family, you are the weird person in your family. <laughs> but they would edit their resumes. History tells us that the Herods were famous for this, of writing out someone that they didn't want to be associated with them they would just write them out of their resume. They would intentionally make themselves look better than what their family dynamics were. Look at who is included in Jesus' genealogy. And I preached a series on this last year about the women, and that's the only, just look at the women mentioned. You've got Tamar, we talked about her story. In the genealogy of Jesus, you have Rahab. Rahab was a Gentile non Jew. She was a Gentile and she was a prostitute. You've got Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites came about from an incestuous relationship that Lot had with one of his daughters. Ruth's in there. David, and scripture says, the wife of Uriah, who we know as Bathsheba. That's a, a narrative of betrayal, of abuse, of power, of murder. Jesus' lineage is full of outsiders, moral outsiders, ethnic outsiders, the Gentiles, and gender outsiders, women. <clears throat> this is all intended to convey a message. Jesus, this humble Jesus, came for the outsider. Jesus was not afraid to identify with the outcast and make them a part of his family. Neither should the church of Jesus have that fear. See, David, King David, and prostitute Rahab are mentioned in the same list because in Jesus Christ, both the king and the prostitute sat down as equals at the same table. And these names are included in the lineage, in the line that leads us to Jesus so you can know that your name can be included in the line that leads from Jesus. Listen to me this morning. No matter who you are or what you have done, there is room in God's family for you. You may feel like an outcast, but you are not. Christ has brought you close to him. You may feel worthless this morning, but you are not. Christ has purchased you with the universe's most valuable possession, his blood. You may think that God's plan for you is over. This genealogy shows you that his plan for you has just begun. God was at work in the ugliest of situations, bringing forth his most humble and beautiful Son, and in Jesus Christ, God takes the ugliness of my life and the ugliness of my sin, and he redeems it for the beauty of his glory. You see, everything that you really need to know about God's story is in this obscure genealogy 
that shows us the humility of Jesus. Though humble, Jesus is the center point of history. When it's all said and done, and all the minor actors have taken a seat, the only one at center stage receiving all the applause will be him. Jesus is working in your life right now to accomplish his purpose. Your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, he's working in it to accomplish his purpose. Maybe this morning your, do- your job is to simply trust him, to trust that he's at work in your life. Jesus came for the outsider, and I've got news for you this morning. Every single one of us, we are outsiders. And Jesus came for the outsider. Have you received your status as a member of his family and kingdom? Let me ask that question again because I think it's important. I didn't ask, have you achieved your status? I said, have you received your status as a member of his family? and his kingdom. For you see, here's the thing about us as outsiders. We can't do anything to get in. We can't be good enough. You ever try to be good enough? How many of you said, I'm only going to eat two heifers of turkey and dressing, and you're on number six? Wait, wait, we can't. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough to get in. Jesus had to come out. And Jesus had to come down so that we could come in and one day with him go up. If you're here this morning and you're not on the inside of God's kingdom, but you've been trying so hard to work your way in, I've got two words for you. Stop it. Because you're not going to get in through your efforts. But you can be received in through his. Because this Jesus came with humility. Humility, according to Philippians chapter 2, that led him to the point of death, even death on the cross. And it's that death that brings us inside God's family. Nothing in my hand do I bring simply to thy cross do I cling. Is that your testimony this morning? Would you bow with me? As we bow our hearts and our heads together and, and we prepare to end our time of of worship. I hope that it's the end of, of corporate worship, but just the beginning of living a life of worship for Jesus. I don't know what God has placed upon your heart to do today, <clears throat> but I know that his desire for whatever he's placed on your heart is for you to simply say yes. If you're here today and you've never placed faith in Jesus Christ, he is simply a prayer away. In a second, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, if, if you need to ask Jesus to save you, would you just right where you are, pray and ask him to save you. Repent of your sins. Repent for trying to work your way in. And just ask him to receive you.
to as many as received him, to them he gave the rights to be called the children of God. Maybe God's already brought you into, the, into his family. But today, maybe God's reminded you something about his grace. Maybe God's placed upon your heart that family member you spent time with this past weekend who's a part of your physical family, but they're not a part of your spiritual family. My friend, physical families, as wonderful as they are, one day will fade away, and the only thing that we're going to find ourselves facing eternity is our spiritual family. Maybe you need to pray for them this morning. Whatever God's called you to do, after I pray, this altar is open. If you have a step you need to take, we would love to help you take that step. If you need to do business with God right in your pew or in this altar, you do what God's calling you to do today. Father, I thank you for the humility of Jesus. Who, though he was equal with God, did not consider that equality something to be grasped but that he humbled himself so that his humility could overpower my pride. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room today, if there's anyone watching us online this morning that stands outside your kingdom, today would they simply rest in your grace and receive your offer. Whatever you're calling us to do today, whatever you've placed on our table, may we simply say yes in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let's stand.